Hey, Andrew, I was just reading this news article about uh, this ship from London full of pink paint that was heading west. Really? I've not heard that one. Yeah, so there's a, another ship coming in from New York headed east full of blue paint, and they had a collision right there. Oh no, what happened? Both crews were marooned. Hello, and welcome to Pints and Princesses. Welcome back to Pints and Princesses, where two dads read between the lines and kids' movies. I'm Andrew. And I'm Jake. On today's episode, we are continuing our boisterous opinions on Sleeping Beauty. If you've not listened to part one yet, we really recommend you start there, since this episode picks up right in the middle of the conversation. Yeah, so uh, Sleeping Beauty runs <clears throat> home. She gets back to the... Not yet. We cut back to, right, to the cottage, fairies. and we see the horrible cake and the ugly right. dress, and uh, <laughs> I chuckled quite a bit at this line, but uh, Meriwether, who is the dummy that Flora is sewing the dress on, <laughs> says, this dress looks awful. And Flora says, that's because it's on you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's cold, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, yeah, this cake is like melting, it's falling over, the candles are sliding down the icing like a slide. The dress, I can't even describe. It's, it's just, just a mess. It's a mess. It's a mess. And it's all a mess. And whose idea was it to get the wands out? Meriwether's. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Meriwether says, We should have used the wands from the beginning, just like I said. So she runs upstairs and she gets the wands. And Flora says, We have to be careful. Shut the doors and the windows, fill every crack. Nobody can see us using magic. Mm hmm. And rightly so. Little right. of their knowledge, they're under surveillance. Right. So Fauna starts making the cake again with magic. She basically, she lets all the ingredients look at the recipe and says, go and do it, right? <laughs> That's right. And I love how the eggshells just disappear after, like, the eggs crack themselves open and, and dump the contents in the bowl. Then and the then shells vanish. just... Yeah. Well, just like the dust that uh, Meriwether sweeps That's right. <laughs> right. I love that scene where she's got this pile of dust. She looks around. She's like, what am I going to do this? Oh, make it disappear. <laughs> it's a vanishing spell. Yeah. Yes, it's a cool little, you know, kind of like musical dance scene where now like they've got their magic back and they're doing mm -hmm. things the way they're used to and they're all happy and pleasant until the conflict. And the conflict always happens. That's right. So, and this conflict was foreshadowed in the previous scene when they're trying mm -hmm. to make the dress by hand. Flora wants a pink dress, just like, you know, the, the pink paint and the ship leaving London. <laughs> and... Uh, and Meriwether wants a blue dress, like the ship with blue paint leaving New York. And they use their magic to constantly change the color back and forth, right? Right. At first, they start out by changing the color of the dress. Mm -hmm. And then one of them accidentally changes the color of the other. I think Flora tries to step in front of the dress to block oh, the spell. and gets turned blue. Yes. Yeah. And then she turns Meriwether red. Mm -hmm. And then it's just... It's just this gunfight. It's a food fight. Yeah. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. It's a food fight. And uh, neither one's going to back down. They're going to win, although they don't change tactics. So I don't know how they expect. <laughs> Whatever. See, but this is it. This is a food fight. It's not really <laughs> about winning, right? Like, there's not like a clear victor. It's just about smashing pies in people's faces. Okay. That's what happens, right? <laughs> they just make a mess is yep. what happens. Yeah. Do you want to point out, as Meriwether's cleaning... We talked about this a little bit, the, the enchanted moth. Mm -hmm. Is this the time that you pull it out of your pocket? Or yeah, we, we that's right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, the same bucket and mop kind of scene that we've seen in uh, 
the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. So, during the food fight of the pink and blue, the spells end up shooting out of the chimney and, uh, and sparking up in the air, and they catches the eye of the crow. Mm-hmm. And the crow flies over and doesn't get in yet, though. Right. So, it arrives almost about the same time Aurora returns home, and they hear her coming, and the I guess at the same time, t- both spells hit the dress simultaneously, That's and it right. kind of turns into this mottled mess of pink and blue. Mm-hmm. And right, and then suddenly it's like, oh, she's coming, mm-hmm. and it's all business. There's no more dancing around. It's like, we just do everything. Right. And what color do they leave the dress? Blue. Right. Which you pointed out last time is ironic because Aurora in the Disney canon uh, is known for a pink dress. That's right. And all the, if you look at the Disney princess franchises, mm-hmm. her color is pink because they gave blue to Cinderella, right. even though she her dress was dress. silver. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure whenever they sat down at the marketing table, you know, they had some thoughts that had little to do with being genuine to the movie and a lot to do with how much money they thought they could make off the different. Mastanero. Yeah. <laughs> that's right we're worried about academy awards they were worried about bank of usa awards <laughs> <laughs> all right so the, the dress ends up blue meriwether wins i guess mm-hmm. you would say and the the ants hide they leave the mop running they meet yes and then flora <laughs> says oh goodness who left the mop running which is just an, such an absurd statement yeah, yeah. <laughs> well it's so funny because it sounds so modern yeah. <laughs> yeah. but then you know they use their magic to to stop it and it just like brings itself out on the floor and falls over which why you couldn't just put it away is this with helpful magic. Yeah. yeah i don't know it's just a joke yeah it was, and it was a funny joke i chuckled about it both times and we're chuckling about it now. Yeah. So I liked that it was in the movie. Yeah. Then Aurora comes in and she only shuts the half door. The bottom half of the door. Right. Why does she do that? I don't yeah. know. Because it sets up the conflict. That's right. And because she's so excited because she just met the love of her life. Right. And uh, she returns and uh, they say, I believe they say surprise, right? Something mm-hmm. like that. But she doesn't really notice anything she doesn't notice the dress she doesn't notice the cake no 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 she notices she does, does she? Okay. yeah she says oh thank you thank you thank you thank you that's so wonderful everything is wonderful i have to tell you about the wonderful thing that just happened to me in the woods you have to meet him and they're like him who yeah. <laughs> right. and then she grabs flora and she's kind of dancing no she grabs fauna and she's dancing around and fauna says oh no she's in love right this is terrible she's and aurora says why is what? this terrible and that's when they say, well, you're already betrothed to Prince Philip. And at this point, that crow is sitting on the half door, mm-hmm. sticking its head in, watching and listening. That's right. And then they explicitly say, she says, but that can't be true because I'm not a princess. He says, you are a princess. Well, but you are. You're Princess Aurora. And crow then, says, da-ding! <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is very true. Yeah, which, you know, it's interesting to me. I was, you know, we talked about in Cinderella, this conflict of visions where, you know, the king is all practical. He just needs to get married to somebody to, you know, make heirs to run the kingdom. And, you know, the Grand Duke is all blah, 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 romance, falling in love. This is actually, it's starting to set up a very similar story arc where 
there's this perceived conflict between Aurora's heart and Philip's heart, right? Like, mm-hmm. we'll see both of these play out, where they say, like, no, I'm in love with somebody else. I can't marry this person I'm betrothed to. And then there's the arranged marriage for political reasons. Right. Which, I mean, you know, if you aren't caught up in the deep parts of romance, like, you know, the idea that these two kingdoms unifying and sharing resources and, you know, like, you could really think about a lot of people's lives benefiting from that kind of uh, an arrangement. And, you know, in a time when that's how arrangements were made, then you can see how somebody would say, like, no, you're chasing your love is selfish compared to the greater good here that would be the unification of our kingdoms and the ultimate stuff ahead. But, once again, it's a setup that ultimately is not going to get resolved. Or it's a conflict that doesn't need resolved, right? It's built up to this conflict that just resolved. Right, there's there's not a... I guess what I mean is there's not a winner. It's not like it's not like clearly decided right. which of those is right because Everybody they wins. reconverge. Yeah. Right. Everybody wins. Yay, Disney. <laughs> to your point, though, as a child, you know, I remember thinking of arranged marriages as this kind of almost evil construct, right? Mm. It's like, why would you force somebody to marry somebody that, that they don't love? It, it's interesting how, as I've matured and grown and seen the world a different way, that I'm like, oh, you know... Those things actually make sense. I'm not saying I would want to be in one, but I could see why arranging a marriage, especially between two ruling families right. for a political gain, to unify them. And what better way to kind of unify two countries than through a marriage and, and making them a family? Right. Well, and I think the perspective that I have gained with age is to see how <laughs> when you're in the throes of an infatuation, you couldn't possibly be convinced that it could be temporary. But the <laughs> fact is, it is. I mean, that That's stuff always dissipates. You know, I think you see this play out in people's lives all the time where, you know, like... <laughs> that was a big chunk of ginger. <laughs> yeah, you got the dregs that, a little that bit. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of the beer. <laughs> yeah, but you know, people really get invested in just that idea. And then after a year or three years or five years, that stuff cools off and you get down to the practical realities of living with another human being who isn't always living up to your expectations. And then at that point, you know, what an arranged marriage would demand of you, which is to be intentional and, you know, like to work at it, that's demanded of you in an arranged marriage. That's what you need to get through to the other side. Because, you know, in my experience, you know, love is much more of an activity than it is a feeling, right? Like you can... That's interesting. That's something that I, I was taught early on in my, my dating life is that uh, that love is an action. Love is a verb. We actually use it as a verb, right? Mm-hmm. When you say, I love you to somebody, like love is the verb in that sentence. And it's not a feeling. You don't say, I feel love towards you, mm-hmm. Right. So when you you get married and you promise to love somebody the rest of your life, you're promising that action. You're not promising to feel a certain way about somebody every day for the rest of your life because that would be absurd. Right. But if you you really think about it, it's obviously absurd to try and promise how you're going to feel because Mm -hmm. I don't have any control over my feelings really. You know, I can maybe nudge them in one direction or another, but I don't get to pick them. I just have Mm -hmm. to deal with them when they come. So I agree. Love is the action that you take right? It's the things that you do. It's not the things that you feel. But I think it's interesting to observe right here that when they say true love's first kiss, 
Do you think that they're talking about the actions that mm-hmm. Philip has taken or the infatuated feelings that he's experiencing towards Aurora? I had not thought about that. I know which side I come down on. I don't think Philip has had any opportunity to engage in the activity of love towards Aurora. Well, you know what? I'm going to take that back right away. Mm -hmm. He did escape from a dungeon, fight goons, evade hazards, hack through a briar bush. So maybe there is something to be said for the fact that he has laid something on the line. He slayed a dragon, but we'll get That's true. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, I think that I'm not ready to pass judgment on that. I mean, he's obviously taken actions to work at love, right? To to for this relationship, he's worked at this relationship, but it is the is timeline he, is so is he, short, right? Is he like pursuing the infatuation. Still, I agree. Yeah. I don't know that I'm I'm ready to pass judgment on this. Yeah, let's um, put a pin in it. We'll we'll see how we feel after we get to the right. end of it. Or uh, you know, we'll check in on them in a, yeah ten years. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we'll, we'll be back in 1969. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I, we watched. Do you ever watch the show Descendants? I have not. Descendants is not the right one. That's the modern show that's like this. Once upon a time, there's a series called Once Upon a Time that Disney put out, where it was like it's like a mashup of all these different fairy tale characters in the same thing. Anyways, I think. I was trying to remember. Snow White is like the main character. Snow White and Prince Charming are like the opening thing. And that show works heavily this idea of true love as like this extremely powerful magic. I don't remember Sleeping Beauty and Philip being in that show, which is just kind of surprising to me as I... Well, they probably figure we have one sleeping broad with Snow White. We don't need another. <laughs> yeah. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on. So the the crow completes reconnaissance mission mm-hmm. and, and returns to base. That's right. And we cut over to the castle, right? Am I missing any parts of this? Nope. I think that's it. All right. This is my favorite scene, and yes, please open the bottle of wine. <laughs> so, in the castle, we have uh, King Stefan and King Hubert in preparing for the return of Aurora. The feast is laid. The feast is laid, and uh, yeah, Aurora's coming back. She's going to marry Prince Philip. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be Or at least awesome. that's what Hubert thinks. Yes. So, <laughs> let us pour the wine. So, in this scene, the... Stefan calls in the wine, and the minstrel slash waiter comes in. Slash plan carrier. Yeah, that's right. He <laughs> he is the right-hand man, you know, if only because he's at the right hand of uh, the king. That's right. What Hubert wants, the minstrel gets. So, uh, he comes in with the wine, and he starts sneaking drinks of the wine as, <laughs> uh, as Hubert and Stefan are toasting. And this is where uh, the term scumps, scumps. En- enters Scumps. It's not clear why they say it, except that it's apparently a drinking buddy. They, they say it and they drink every time they make it. <sighs> so we have a. Tell us about the wine here, Jake. So this is a, a winery that's here local in Crossville, Tennessee. I actually will say most of my courtship of my wife involved this. Actually, Davenport Red specifically was a big part of. We're saying uh, brand names now. Well, it's yeah. I, that's uh, that's all right. Yeah. I mean. This is a significant part of your life. Yeah, that's right. So, and, so and I don't House. mind supporting 
this company since uh, they yeah they're awesome man so, so they're they're up Davenport in Davenport Wines everybody Davenport Wines well it's, it's Stonehouse Wines sorry the name of the wine is Davenport Red it's a blend it's got Concord it's sweet it's fruity I mean if you don't like to drink wine you're still gonna like to drink this because it's just the friendliest thing if you're trying to get into it there's no better way so I agree scumps luscious so the aroma here is. It's very sweet. It almost just tastes like grape juice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is it is a very sweet. Well, so lots of wines aren't made from Concord grapes, yeah. which I mean, that's what Welch's is, right? Mm-hmm. That's a Concord grape. So this is a blend that uses a lot of Concord. It's got those flavors. It's got a lot of sugar. It's awesome. It's not low carb. <laughs> it is not low carb. <laughs> I'm going to have to get up tomorrow morning at five and go running. Huh. You know, to run off these carbs. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Would you like to join me? Sure. All right. Let's do it. So we have this scene, and it's and it's this interesting, you know, it's typical of these things, right? Like Stefan, who's super intimately involved, has all these worries, and Hubert, who's more tangentially involved, is like, ah, it's going to be fine. You're worrying yourself. Well, well also, you know, he, enjoy. He's, he's already like, the wedding's happening tonight. They're going to move into this, you know, house I've already built for him. He's like, already mm-hmm. built? <laughs> Right tonight, like I'm just getting my daughter back. It's like, yeah, she's just gonna love it. <laughs> well, he's had his son these past sixteen years, right? He, plus six, he has been living sacrifice. Yeah, right. Whereas Stefan has been his sacrifices. Living. I've had to wait sixteen years for this, for the wedding, which we hope he would have waited sixteen years anyways. I think, yeah. Who knows? This is bizarre world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Ancient land. Yeah. So there's kind of this like. Mm debate argument going on between Hubert and Stefan about, you know, well, what are we going to do? And Yeah, that's right. Stefan feeling like Hubert way overstepped himself as far as the preparations. You know, and then he subtly implies that it might come as a shock to Aurora. Aurora. (laughs) That she's betrothed. She doesn't know anything about this. (laughs) Hubert takes it as a direct offense against his son. Right. Why wouldn't she love Philip? Why doesn't your daughter (laughs) like my son? Right. (laughs) <laughs> then he he grabs a fish, right? That's right. He's angry about it. Well, th- it's funny. So the fish is lying on the platter and there's a knife right on top of it. And so like he's reaching over there, like not looking at it, grabbing for it. And it's like, oh man, he's about to grab a knife on this guy. But instead he grabs the tail of the fish and starts wielding it, you know. Uh, like a sword. Yeah. And uh, what does Stefan pick up as a shield? The platter. The I platter. Think. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this means war! <laughs> right. And this is just escalating in an insane way. And Stefan, this recurring quote now, he says, Why you unreasonable, blustering, pompous old windbag? <laughs> right. Just like the king in Cinderella, right? He calls the Archduke. That's right. So what he gave, he got. That's right. And then the the fish falls limp. Immediately they can see the absurdity of the whole thing. And it it de-escalates faster than it escalated. Right. Meanwhile, the minstrel has been sneaking wine (laughs) the entire scene from glasses directly from the bottle. He's filled up his loot (laughs) with uh, with wine. And he falls asleep under the table. And as the the fight de-escalates. The two kings hear him snoring, or hear the hear the <laughs> the instrument musicality. Dude, I, I think it's I think it's a really cool thing they do there because it's yeah, it's this like kind of low supers like 
Yes, it's a kind of a cool little like, musical so, effect they did to make yeah. him snore on the lute. Yeah, so as he's like breathing or snoring in his sleep, the instrument is, uh, yeah, is passed out under yeah. the table. So they lift the tablecloth and they, they find the minstrel. So uh, I think it's a really well done scene. It's probably my favorite part of the movie. It's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. We get this physical humor that was is absent for most of the movie. It's got a little bit of physical humor. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of, you know, I'll say like dialogue type humor. It, you know, kind of rom-com level of... Uh... There's rom-com in there, yeah. <laughs> but it advances the story quite quickly. We're kind of brought back to reality, right? Like the cottage in the woods, like you said, it's 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 on the edge. Mm-hmm. And the this is like, hey, we're back in the real world now. And there's these things that are going on and that Aurora's not aware of. She doesn't know this. And she's going to, like, she's going to have to deal with this stuff. Right. And it, it goes through... You know, all of that stuff very quickly in a fun way. And right. It helps to point out a conflict that's coming, but without just having to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. And then it concludes when Philip arrives. That's right. <laughs> Who brings a new conflict. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And it's interesting how King Hubert accepts this. Accepts Philip not wanting to marry Aurora more easily than he was ready to accept Aurora not wanting to marry Philip. Yeah. You treat people differently when you actually know them. You know, he's probably dealt with problems from Philip before. That's true. Where Aurora is a concept to him. Right. She's an imaginary baby I saw in a crib once. Hmm. Yeah. I I do love the line, Father, it's the 14th century. (laughs) (laughs) Which... He then uses later when he's talking to King Stephen. It's great. So to put the scene together, the Philip comes riding into the to the castle courtyard on his horse on Samson, and he pulls to a stop and greets his father. And he says, "Father, you know I'm I'm in love. I'm found the girl I'm going to marry." He says, "What you met Aurora? No, no, it's, she's a peasant or something." And, and uh, he says, "A peasant girl? What's your you're going to ruin me?" Well, you know, it's interesting. This has happened in our lifetime. Princes marrying outside of, you know, whatever the proper constraints are and therefore abdicating the throne. Right. And that's what Steph Hubert says, right? Like, right. you're going to abdicate the throne, like, you give up everything. The crown, and he, he takes the crown off his head and he's about to throw it, right? <laughs> and Philip stops him. But, uh, but yeah, and Philip's like, yep. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's the 14th century after all. <laughs> And right. what's he do? Get back on his horse? <laughs> They've got that cool little um, Bugs Bunny style scene where he's like, you need to marry the girl of my dreams? Marry the girl of your dreams. He says, okay. <laughs> Goodbye, father. Goodbye, father. You know, he's yeah. like, he like gets this his is, dad to start repeating everything he says. This is a very Bugs Bunny. Huh? Yeah. It's <laughs> <That's> awesome. <laughs> Rabbit season. <laughs> Dark season. Fire! <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then... Philip charges off. And uh, Hubert goes to tell Stefan the tough news. That's right. He's got some bad news he has to give. And then we get this scene of the fairies bringing Aurora back to the castle. Which, you know, I haven't commented on this yet, so I'm just going to do it now. Although I understand from my reading that the conflict between the animators and the background artists were problematic, I really love the backgrounds that they have in this movie. You know, like, I think that they're really cool. They're really pretty. I love this effect that they, all of the trees have this geometry about them. You know, like, where they're, like, very round. 
or very square. There's just all this kind of like subtle character to the background stuff that I really like. And this scene is a great place to see it, right? Because there's like there's no talking. It's mostly background, right? It's just and silhouettes moving. Yeah, that's right. It's these it's these characters moving across, man. And there's a in the scene where they're getting into the castle. It appears that the way the castle is constructed is that there's a wall around it, and then there's an elevated bridge up to a drawbridge that enters the castle. I just point that out because I've never... It's the only place where I've ever seen that. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it's like hmm. its like this elevated archway thing going over the top, and then it's a drawbridge. But, like, the drawbridge is on the second story, and it's, like, above this whole tall wall that the drawbridge goes across instead of a moat. Which I, hmm. You know, just interesting. I did read that the guy who who did all that drawing spent a bunch of time, like, touring Europe and looking at medieval things, tapestries and paintings and castles and stuff. I wonder if that's real somewhere. I could see how somebody could think that's, like, a good idea. You know, like, yeah, digging I mean, moats is hard, building walls is easier. Yeah, we got all these yeah. masons around. That's right. <laughs> Give them something to do. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so, they get her to the bedchamber. That's right. They give her the final gift, right? The, the crown. That's right. And she, you know, they put it on her head and then she sits down in front of this vanity and puts her head on her arms and just... What's interesting, in the in the little poem that they say when they're making the crown, I notice that they particularly use the word duty. That's right. Yeah. You know, which I thought, I thought kind of like, kind of, it does a good job of just like kind of subtly putting a pin in exactly what's going on here. It's like, this isn't about your, you know, like infatuation love. This is about your duty. That's what this crown represents is your duty. And so she feels that it's obvious. <laughs> yeah. She puts her head in her arms and she just starts crying. The fairies say, let's give her some time alone. And they, they exit the bedchamber. <sighs> Big mistake. Big mistake. I mean, it, and you just feel it, right? It's completely obvious. Like, no, do not leave her alone <laughs> right now. We're so close. Right. Yeah. And then what happens? Maleficent. Dude, she so enters through the fire. Yeah. Right, what's more evil than that? Well, first she extinguishes the fire, and then, yeah, she kind of, like, grows out of the fireplace. And they introduce this green pallor that kind of, like, her her light changes the colors of everything. That, that's very prevalent in this kind of third act. Mm-hmm. And they, they really play with the colors. Like, they, they'll put this tinge on everything in the scene to portray what's going on. Right, mm-hmm. like when people fall asleep a little bit later, like the colors change; they become more muted and darker. I'm going to talk about that more. I think that's part of my stacking discussion. All right, yeah. So Maleficent creates a doorway in the fireplace, which seems like it ought to mean something, but I don't know what it is. Leads her into the fireplace, and then the fairies are outside. Maybe it's the entrance into hell. Oh, that's an interesting point. Which comes up later with the dragon, right? So now she's got Aurora hypnotized. She's leading her through. The fairies are in the other room, you know, like, oh, well, you know, why does she have to do this? You know, that's kind of Meriwether's opinion. Like, this, yeah, this mm-hmm. does seem like it's not fair. And Fauna says, that's not for us to, des- to decide, dear. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. A very Fauna answer. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of like, I can't remember what exactly triggers them, but they're like. No, it, so it, it's Flora. Something triggers her to say, Maleficent, we shouldn't have left her alone. Like, either she hears something or senses something. Yeah. And they all rush back. Right. I think the doorway in the... It seems 
like they're frustratingly incompetent in this scene. I agree. So, like, they see this doorway, and it closes, right? They see her go through the doorway, and then it closes, become a brick wall in the, the chimney. wall again. Right? Yeah. Then we cut scenes over behind the wall, and we see Aurora hypnotized, kind of ascending the stairs. And then it cuts back to the fairies in the bedchamber. And, yeah. They're, and they're just shouting. <laughs> right. They're just, like, like, yelling at the rocks. Aurora, Aurora, Aurora. <laughs> It's like, oh, that's right, we have magic. Right, and, and they make the doorway again. You know, I guess maybe you could make maybe make an argument that they haven't used it in 16 years, but no. it's just so no. silly. No, this was specifically to give Aurora time to go prick her finger before they catch her. Yeah. So then they run through and then, you know, are searching for her in this maze that is somehow behind the fireplace. And well, you know, I... Yeah, I would presume that, that all it really did was open it into a different hallway. Because, like, if you look at the stairs she's ascending, they actually look a lot like the stairs that they come up when they're entering right. to go to the bedchamber. Yeah. You're right. It, I mean, it's really irrelevant. The whole point is they can't get to her in time. She, under this hypnosis, ascends the stairs into this chamber to this magically it's, appearing... It, it's interesting. Wheel. So this, in the fairy tales... The princess does tend to prick her finger in a remote area. So she goes to a high tower, mm. or she goes to an edge of the castle, where the thing that was removed mm -hmm. still exists. In one version, she comes across an old lady working at a spinning wheel, and says, right. and like, can I try that, or something. Right. And Because she'd never seen one before, but, because they were all destroyed. But it merits consideration, like, why would Maleficent just conjure this spinning wheel in the middle of the room where she is? Which is what she does in the movie, right? <laughs> the green glowing blob that hypnotizes Aurora. No, 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 that's my point. Yeah. She hypnotizes Aurora and she leads oh. her all the way up to this tower. Yeah. Maybe right? because that's part of the hypnosis, to get her fully under the spell. Maybe. Or get her away from the other fairies. Right. But all I'm saying is you probably could have gotten it done quicker if you'd have been like, here's the spinning yeah. wheel, do it right now. But it's easier for the fairies to get into that room than it is to find her in this hidden passage behind the fire. Evidently. Yeah. Right, so there's a chase scene, they get to the tower, she pricks her finger, and then... And by the time the fairies get there, Maleficent's in the room and basically gloats over her victory and reveals dead, quote, air quotes, dead Aurora. Yeah, it's interesting... In the original versions, I think, at least in some of them, it's clear that the evil fairy doesn't know that her spell has been moderated. But I think it's pretty clear here that Maleficent does. What makes it clear? She immediately goes to capture Philip. She understands this, what is going to release Sleeping Beauty from the sleep. But she doesn't know it's Philip. She, she doesn't know who it is. She just knows right. what the crow told her. That the man that Aurora loves is coming to the cottage tonight. But if she thought Aurora was dead, that plan is unnecessary, right? Like, if my Valid original point. curse were in place, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's no reason to bother with Philip because I just won. Valid so, point. Yeah, I don't... Doesn't get any address in the film as far as I can tell. Right, so she gloats, she leaves. The, the fairies then take Aurora to her bed, and they're obviously distressed. They're upset about this. They empathize sig significantly with the king and queens, and how are they going to deal with this? We're skipping a scene. There's a scene in the king's court where Hubert is trying to give his bad news <laughs> to Stefan. That's right. Good classic. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, it's like one of the things, like, he's trying to, like, ah, I don't know, 
what to say to this guy. And this is a just a scene that's been replayed throughout popular culture so many times, right? <laughs> I, I don't know if it was if it had been at this time or right. if this is just my perspective as a contemporary. But hey, I got bad news to break to you, and just before I can deliver it, I'm stopped. Right, and yeah, it happens some distraction twice. <laughs> Yeah, so the sun sets. Well, the sunset is what interrupts him the first time. Right, right. And then I think at that point... He gets interrupted three times. Yeah, that's true. He gets interrupted three times. First by the sunset, then by the fairies putting him to sleep, and then because Philip and Aurora are in the room and in love. He's like, yeah, I don't get it. Right, so then we cut back to the fairies. They're in the bed. And so then they decide that they're not going to... I don't know. I have to be a little bit critical here where it's like... Oh, you don't have the guts to tell them that you've yeah. done messed up. And so, you know, instead, I'm just going to make everybody fall asleep. But it does give an opportunity. So right now, Maleficent's curse is kind of on top. When they start putting people to sleep, to me, the coloring that they use is just the same as the hypnotic coloring associated with Maleficent. Mm-hmm. And I am speculating that the fairies are not... They're not putting the castle to sleep of their own power. What they're actually doing is they're actually stretching out, right? Like this is a layer that they're laying on top of Maleficent's curse that now extends it out to the rest of the castle. This is actually, and this is something that it shows up in the other tales as well. In the originals, there's the idea that the fairies feel compassion. In the fairy tales, I think they actually feel compassion for the princess that when she wakes up, she's going to be all alone. That's right. And have nobody there. And so instead, they extend it to the whole castle so that when she wakes up, like kind of this familiar structure will be around her. That's right. In the fairy tales, significant time passes. A hundred years. Right. It, where in the movie, as you pointed out earlier, it's really just a few hours. Right. It's enough time for Maleficent to capture Philip, gloat, fairies to uncapture him. He charges out, does his fighting. And then wakes up Sleeping Beauty. So, King Hubert is trying to break to King Stefan. Hey, Philip's in love with a peasant girl and he's not going to marry Aurora. But before he can tell, he gets interrupted by sunset. And at sunset, they play the trumpets. They're like, hey, the princess is coming back. So then he tries to tell again. And the fairies put him to sleep. But as he's falling asleep, he says, Philip's in love with a peasant girl and Flora. Flora puts it together. Flora hears him, and she kind of does this Tinkerbell thing where she's, like, trying to wake him up and, like, well, yeah. what did you say? And, and kind of get the last bits of information. And you're right. She, she makes the connection. This peasant girl is Aurora, and Aurora is in love with Prince Philip. So she goes and gets the other fairies, and they rush back to the woodcutter's cabin. Where we are now cutting in to watch Philip. Attempting another pint? May as well. All right. Another pint. Well, not quite a pint of, of your... Definitely not a pint. <laughs> a pint of wine is quite a bit. <laughs> right. So this is a... Just another glass of wine. Another poor. Poor. That's right. So we cut back to see Philip showing up to the woodcutter's cottage. He's excited. It's dark. Knocks on the door. Comes in. A female voice says, come in. That's right. Obviously, this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> Turns out it's Maleficent big mistake you know i mentioned in cinderella and i saw it here too this thing where like as these goons are pouncing on philip they do show you some of philip fighting with the goons Mm -hmm. 
but they also do this thing where you can see Maleficent's face and then a silhouette projection the of, shadows, the, of yeah. the goons jumping I, on it. I made a note of that as well. That is another one of these recurring themes. Yeah, it's a technique um, they use. I think it's neat that we pull a, a lot of these out and show them in, throughout these different movies. But I think it's neat that they did them and we can notice them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> whether whether they're like thematic or creative or cinematic, and it kind of creates this series or this franchise that seems consistent. That's right. Got Even though continuity. Even though in real time, they are decades apart. <laughs> yeah, that's a good right. point. That's a good point. So then Maleficent drags him <clears throat> back, and then fairies get there. They figure out that he's not there. And then what, we- what does she say to the goons after they capture him? So she says, take him away, but be careful with him. I have plans for a special guest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, right. For a royal guest. Yes. Yeah. That's right. She didn't realize... That this, this... I came to catch a peasant and caught a prince. That's right. <laughs> she didn't realize that the boy that Aurora was in love with was the Prince Philip. Yep. So she scored the jackpot. <laughs> Third jackpot of the day. That's right. Yep, so they drag him back. We have the fairies show up and realize that they failed. Yep. Uh, as they get back to the cottage, they see Philip's hat on the floor along with broken dishes and scenes of a struggle and... Very quickly deduce, Philip's been captured by Maleficent. No, they've got to go rescue him. To the Forbidden Mountain? That's impossible. (laughs) We must. Yeah, so now we get our extended period of time at the Forbidden Mountain. Scumps! Scumps! Pints and Princesses is brought to you by HammerTech. HammerTech builds custom software like websites and mobile apps, and provides managed IT support for businesses. That's right. HammerTech built and operates a video streaming website that gets over 3 million visitors a month. By leveraging the power of cloud computing, HammerTech keeps this site and mobile app running smoothly and scales it dynamically to meet real-time traffic demands. To find out how HammerTech can be your technology solution provider, visit HammerTech.com or email info at HammerTech.com. And remember... There's no me in HammerTech. It's H-A-M-M-R-T-E-C-H dot com. All right. So, man, I love this dark palace. Like, it's just, you know, like, I'm a fantasy nerd. So, like, goblins patrolling, gargoyles. Like, the whole thematic is just too awesome for me. It's like a Dungeons and Dragons quest. Yes, that's right. This is exactly where Dungeons and Dragons happens, and it's awesome. Yeah, so we got a little bit of stealth action, you know? Fairies trying to sneak in, goblin guard, they get small, they fly in there. And then we have this scene with the bonfire, like I said, that, you know, to me is like all night on Bald Mountain. There's like these, you know, creepy creatures dancing around this green flame. Just missing a cock shell on this Lord of the Flies. You saying the children are monsters? I'm saying those children are monsters. <laughs> Have you read that book? <laughs> yeah, this is true. Right, so Maleficent, clearly, you know, like this dancing around the fire thing doesn't seem that interesting to her. She wants to go torture her prisoner. <laughs> right. But the timing is so convenient, right? The, the fairies just arrive mm-hmm. in Maleficent's throne room, and, and she says, I need to go visit our guest. She and the crow head on down. Fairies follow. She leads them right to Philip. Right. Which was their goal. We got a free Philip. Yep. Little close calls. 
And then, dude, there's this... So this is the closest the movie gets to the 100-year thing. Maleficent doesn't say, but says, that she is going to release Philip. She doesn't say, but says? Right. She doesn't say explicitly. Okay. But she clearly implies that in 100 years, she's going to release Philip so that he can go wake Sleeping Beauty. Right? To her, it's not enough just to, like, get rid of Philip and leave Sleeping Beauty in this palace in perpetual sleep. No. That's not good enough. What she wants to do is wait until Philip is so decrepit, there's no way that they can live out, you know, the sort of love thing that they got going on. So then she's going to release him. But a hundred years to a steadfast heart is but a day. You know, she envisions this scene of him ancient, you know, drooped on his horse. Carrying the shield, right. interestingly. But he, he can barely hold on to it. Yeah. And... Yeah, it's a very much like a victory, like a, a Bond villain victory speech, right? Yeah, it's monologuing. That's it. <laughs> so, but then she gets done gloating. You know, Philip is angry but restrained. There's some implication that the crow can, it's like getting some ideas that the fairies are there. Right, yeah. So, Meriwether wants to rush in and help, but they, they grab her and pull her back, and the, the crow kind of looks back and just misses it. Right, so they wait for them to leave. Fairies come in, they bust out the Bond watch laser out of their wands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of James Bond, it's exactly what it reminded me of. Like, the only thing I've ever seen the Bond watch laser used for is cutting manacles. And bingo, bango, they did it. And then, Flora basically says, like, you've got a lot more coming up. You're going to need to be armed. She gives them two things. The shield of virtue and the sword of truth. Interesting that virtue has been a recurring theme of our show. And here it is. And here it is. And, you know, it's, it's something that I've thought about. You know, as a, particularly as a young man, it was not clear to me why virtue, when people talk about virtue in this metaphorical way, it's as armor. It's as defense. And then the truth is the sword. I don't know. I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, like, the truth will set you free. Yeah. Right? Defense isn't going to set you free. You got to fight for freedom. That's my point. But why is virtue the defense? You know, like, why isn't, doesn't courage seem offensive? You know, strength. But, you know, but, yeah, but those virtue are all things. is what you use in, in, I'm not putting any thought into this. This is all extemporaneous. Virtue is what you use to build your character. Right? Like, that's what defines you, right? And your goodness. And you need to build that foundation before you face the storm. But that foundation will never defeat your enemy. It no. will only allow you to endure their attacks. Right? The thing that you have to have. I've thought, well, so I mean, like, this is an image. The sword of truth is an image directly from Revelation. Right? Like, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. Right? Like, it's the idea of this sword of truth. You know, the thing that I... One idea I've been playing with, the sword, what it does is it separates, right? It cleaves. Cuts. It separates things into pieces, which that's kind of what the truth does, right? The truth is something that will allow you to separate things in the sense of, like, this is what we're going to keep and this is what we're going to throw away. Right? It doesn't matter how virtuous you are, 
the only way that you can figure out what you need to keep and what you need to throw away, what you know, to separate the light from dark, the waters from the dry land, right? I mean, like that's a Genesis one thing, right? Is he's God's acts of creation are separations, right? They're separations mm-hmm. of things. And so like that's what truth does, and that's why maybe it's an imaged as a sword. So, you know, what's coming to my mind right now is I believe it's in Ephesians when Paul talks about the armor of God, right? And he talks about all these, you know, pieces of defensive armor that you would put on that are different attributes. And then the only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the sword of the spirit. And it says, which is the word of God, which is also known as the truth, big T. So it's interesting that... The, it's that a consistent image. Is, right. It's a consistent <laughs> image. Exactly what I'm going for. And the truth being the word of God or the Holy Bible is what you can use to separate you know, good from evil or knowledge from falsehoods in the fallen world. Right. And and that's, you know, that's kind of the thing that I was headed towards is that I think their choices there seem to pretty clearly map onto that paradigm. And, you know, I can't say whether or not that analogy extends outside of Christianity, but it definitely exists inside it. That's Um, true. It's consistent with the worldview that that we have and the, mm -hmm. the experiences. And Yeah, that's interesting. So he gets his sword, he gets his shield. Now this guy's ready to go fight some goons. Yeah. I really like Prince Philip in this movie. I think he's a a very developmental character. He's a very well-defined character, much more so than the princes and Snow White and... Jalobar. Yeah, and Cinderella. (laughs) You're right. They're almost set pieces. Like, they're part of the background in those movies. Philip is the action hero. I wouldn't call him the protagonist. I think that belongs to the fairies. But, right. you know, Act 3, it's like... Philip's, Act 3 is the Philip show. Yeah, it's his resume, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's his audition tape, right? If, <laughs> if I was going to send in an audition tape to like be on American Ninja Warrior or <laughs> or Wipeout or, or anything, I would send yeah. Philip's show right here. It's pretty awesome. And this is a kind of action that like haven't seen in um, Disney movies yet. Well, not the ones we've covered, Not right? the ones we've covered. Yeah, I don't know. So I've never seen The Black Cauldron. That's the only one that I would speculate might have something that's on par with this, at least in terms of animated films. I think that they have generally stayed out of, you know, kind of this realm of, you know, battling evil with swords and shields. So as Philip and the fairies are escaping, you know, they encounter the goons. They kind of, like, back up onto this ledge, and Philip's fighting them off with his sword, and the fairies descend with their wings, and then he jumps the, down the ledge. And my son, during this this scene, he goes, parkour! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and and then, then begins the flight, right? Right. Then, then they're, they're... He gets on Samson. Well, they, they free Samson they with the watch, yeah, sorry, the watch lasers. Yes, the watch lasers. And then they're off. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the the defenses start kicking in, right? There's all these interventions by the fairies to protect him as he flees. Right. So the goons throw rocks down on him, right? And one of the fairies turns them into bubbles. Then more goons shoot arrows, and they, they're turned into flowers. And then more pouring, like, hot oil down on him as he's going through an arch. And that kind of gets turned into this rainbow. Right, they kind of make this rainbow that deflects it. And all of this is kind of consistent with the magical rules that they laid out in the beginning, right? We can only use our magic for good and, and, to, and for the happiness of others. Right. They're not destroying the goons. They don't have any powers of mayhem or chaos. All they can do is neutralize threats. 
But then the bird, right? This crow. Going, <laughs> ha, ha. Right. And is evidently some sort of a general for Maleficent, you know, because right. how have we not said this yet? But like she calls it, she calls everything, even the goons, like my pet or my pets, which is, I don't know, it's awfully condescending, but you know. Well, I think in the case of the crow, it's probably literally true. Yes. But the goons, I don't know, maybe. Yeah. I would say that she regards her pet much more highly than the goons. It would be a compliment to them. I do remember a specific scene where she refers to them as her pets. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's her, you know, right? She's a tyrant. She's all about putting herself above the people below her and making sure that they know that she makes clear. Coercive power. That's right. Coercive power. Not servant leadership. She's got a rod. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So. The crow is, you know, flying around, cawing, and trying to marshal the forces. And Meriwether, everybody's fleeing, but Meriwether turns back to confront the crow. Starts shooting at her, at the crow with the wand, right? And, and immediately this scene struck me as something that was inconsistent, right? Like, she's now going on the offense with the magic. And, and the scene culminates with Meriwether turning the crow to stone. Laying an ambush. That's right, laying an ambush and turning the crow to stone as it flies up over the this walkway. And that just seemed really inconsistent with the rules of magic that they had laid down in the beginning of the movie. It's an interesting point, and I've thought about the same thing. You know, what exactly is going on there? I don't know. You know, on one hand, as Meriwether commented, it would make her happy. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something about Meriwether being the bottom of the three, you know, that kind of... If you think of somebody who, as we kind of already discussed, she does dirty work. And so, like, if there's dirty work to be done, that's kind of what Meriwether does. And maybe that's something that's, like, related to what's going on here. Is, you know, like, if they're going to succeed, they've got to get rid of this crow. They've got to expose Maleficent. Well, I don't know. It's probably stretching. But this crow's got to go. And so she takes the initiative. It's poetic. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. I'm a poet. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't even know it. <laughs> but I couldn't help but show it. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. Here we <laughs> go. Uh, how many have we had today? All right. And they escape the, what is this thing called? The evil mountain? The mountain. The forbidden mountain. Forbidden mountain. Right. So now is when Maleficent sends in front of her this mass of thorns. Right. So there's the spell that, that also rhymes. So perhaps yeah. you could recite it for us. No, I don't remember it. You know, it kind of says, around Stefan's castle, I cast my spell, and these, these mm-hmm. giant thorns kind of sprout up all around the castle. Which is definitely a recurring theme in the original fairy tales. So, but usually, it's used to protect the castle. To conceal right. and protect, yeah. To, to keep people out until the hundred years is up. Yeah, that's a good point, is that usually it's not affiliated with the evil fairy. It's affiliated with the extension of the good fairy extending the spell. And putting the whole castle to sleep. But in the movie, it doesn't work. Not for a second, right? The sword of truth cuts through it. Yeah, well, so at least in the ballet, the prince that the lilac fairy selects is able to penetrate the brambles. So, some consistency there. You know, the idea that the chosen prince... But I mean, Maleficent's spell to keep him from the castle doesn't correct. work. Correct, right. She does not succeed in preventing him from penetrating. Sword of truth cuts through it. You know, his cloak does get caught at one point. Yeah, the fairies free him. But he's onto the drawbridge. He is going to enter the castle. And Maleficent turns into this frisbee and 
and flies up in front of him. It's more like a destructo disc. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I guess since we're not saying brand names, yeah, destructo disc. Then <laughs> she lands on the drawbridge in front of him and says, now you have to deal with me. And What's the quote? All the powers of hell. All the powers of hell. Yeah, now you shall deal with me, O prince, and all the powers of hell. Which is quite, like, it's pretty serious. Like, I know the first time I saw this in a Disney movie, I was like, oh, man, like, this is way more intense this than is I'm no, used to. This is no evil stepmother. <laughs> this is... <laughs> the stuff just hit the fan. <laughs> That's right. This is cosmic, condensed evil. It's yeah. about to face it down. In it, if you can't triumph here, this is going to be like that lady who backs into a fan. <laughs> a disaster. <laughs> Scumps! Scumps! <laughs> yeah, so really cool scene, fire breathing. You know, green fire. It? Green fire. At that. That's true. Green right. fire that apparently has a lot of impulse to it. Yeah, a lot of force behind it. So Melissa turns into this dragon that breathes green fire, and it, there's this battle royale with Philip. Right. He gets some hits. But he's but not doing much damage. Shield of Virtue, you know, kind of protects him from the fire. That's right. And then, yeah, there's a couple uh, scenes where the dragon kind of strikes and he dodges out of the way and, and hits the dragon in the face with the Sword of Truth. Yeah, like you said, doesn't do much damage, but he's given... Trading blows. Yeah, he's given as good as he's getting, maybe. <laughs> and then he's kind of backed up to this ledge, right? She blasts the Shield of Virtue out of his hand. It's gone. Now here he is. This is the moment. The fairies again, which, you know, like, this just confirms, like, the fairies never don't participate in any action, right? Like, even when Philip is doing his thing, like, the fairies are always there. They're there, they're like, you know, climb up here to avoid the burning thorns, right? Because the fire right. lights all the thorns. Yeah, that's They right. help them climb up the mountain to, to escape. Holding a sword and shield. Pretty right. impressive. Yeah, right. And at this last moment now, it's like, you know, sword of truth flies swift and sure that evil die and love endure. So they cast the spell on the sword. So poetic, man. It is. It's yeah. man. It's it's awesome. I'm, I'm then, really glad that that you read that quote. You know, it just kind of <laughs> fulfills this this poetry theme that you have going on today. <laughs> That's right. And then he throws the sword straight as an arrow. Yeah, where did I see that? Somebody said he threw it like a spear. It's like that's not how you throw a spear. He threw it straight as an arrow. He goes whoosh, right into the dragon's heart. And then she falls, and all that's left is the sword and, like, her cloak. But there's this moment, like, as the dragon's falling, and this is quite a recurring theme in cinema as well, right? You know, as you defeat some giant monster and it falls over, right, you, you're like, there's a second where you're like, man, they're going to crush the hero, right? Because the dragon falls forward towards Philip, and the fire and the dust all clears, and Philip's kind of, like, looking up, like, oh. Hey. Whoa. <laughs> Dude. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks over, and yeah, like you said, the sword is kind of there, like, stuck in the ground, and there's this, like, goo around it that used to be the dragon. Well, see, I thought of it more like an Obi-Wan moment, you know? Like, all that's left is the cloak. He should have gone down there and, like, <laughs> tapped it with his boot a little bit, like, what's going on here, man? I hope she didn't become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. <laughs> it looked like goo to me. Yeah. So then, I mean, from there, I, it's I, I like, like that we could like, pull Star Wars into another episode. That's, hey, you that know. makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. It's a Disney franchise, after all. That's right. right. Yeah. Scumps. Uh, scumps. 
That's right. So from here, it gets pretty quick. He goes to the top of the tower. He gives Aurora the kiss. Aurora wakes up. And at first... I think Aurora looks different in this scene. They did. I think that they... Most of her was animated like a background and not like an animated figure. You know, they had this like kind of... Not fuzzy exactly, but like... In the scene, you mean? Yeah, in the scene where she's waking up. Well, so when she's in the bed, I think she's clearly part of the background. They draw her that way. And then when after he kisses her, there's this close-up of her face. And not her whole self isn't colored as an animated piece. I think only her facial expression is animated. If you look at the lines of her face and stuff like that. Yeah, it it was was very different than how she looked the rest of the movie. But I thought it looked better. Mm -hmm. I got this impression that she looked better in this scene than she had the rest of the movie. Yeah, I tend to agree. Well, I won't make a comment about whether background animators are better than you know, animator <laughs> well, animators. Well, I mean, it's about who's trying to match who, right? Like, background animators in this movie had full creative freedom. That's true, right? They're, they're king yeah. of the coup. And where the character animators had, had to match the style and were working under time constraints, right? It took them nine years to make this movie. With yes. the production budget, or like the production cost them $6.1 million. And in the initial theatrical release, cinematic release, they made like $5.4 million, which means that bomb, they lost money. Again, this is 1950s money, right? And so it lost money in its initial theatrical release, and it was only on subsequent releases, and then ultimately on home video, that this became a success, and they made their money back. It's worth pointing out that it's one of the 40 most profitable movies ever. It is in the top 40 now, (laughs) after being released in theaters like four times and on home video. Right. With massive marketing budgets behind Princess and the toys and everything. Just saying it's not a failure. Today. I don't think it was a failure then, even though it didn't make money. Okay. Yeah, so... I mean, big picture, yeah, absolutely. Sleeping Beauty wins. Yeah. I mean, there are other films you can point to where it's like, at release, they did not do well. I mean, It's a Wonderful Life is like a classic example of that. It's a Wonderful Mm -hmm. Life bombed in the theaters. Like, nobody went to see it. But then it went on syndication, a bunch of people saw it, and all of a sudden it's like... I mean, it's still an extremely popular movie, which you compare to other movies of the same year, like, it doesn't even show up. Absolutely. I mean, Hallmark has totally made its wonderful life a success. They play it every year at Christmas, right? I think licking it to Hallmark is not fair. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, so, right, so now Philip gets Aurora, everybody wakes up. We resume this conversation between Hubert and Stefan. You know, Hubert is trying to explain that Philip is going to marry this peasant girl. And then Philip and Aurora walk in, and Hubert is just flummoxed. He's like, wait, but I thought... And he just gets nothing. You know, like, nobody says anything. <laughs> Aurora goes and gives him a little kiss on the head, just like Cinderella going on the steps. I'm just saying. Right. And he's like, what do I care? <laughs> <laughs> Why am I looking this gift horse in the mouth? And so then they dance. You know, there's like this little cloud dancing scene. And then um, and the, the fairies are kind of watching from the balcony. Yeah. Flora realizes that the dress is the wrong color. Yeah. So she figures it out. And so they start fading it back and forth. My wife says that when they were kids, they paid great attention to which color it was at the very end. Like to them, this mm. was an indicator of the true color of the dress. Whichever it was like at the last frame of the last scene, like that's the real color. Of Man, I'm dress. on the edge of my seat now. What color was it? Don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't tell you? No. 
Man, what a lift. <laughs> I don't think that they actually, they were more interested in the activity of trying to identify it than they were in the actual outcome. So there was constantly a debate is what you're saying. Right. They were always debating about which one was the right color, which, you know, I think is, I think it's consistent with the total picture. I agree. Yeah. And then we close the storybook and that's the end of the movie. Outstanding. Well, my friends. Thank you for <laughs> enduring uh, this with us. This is, so far, our longest episode of Pints and Princesses. We appreciate you guys sticking around to the very end. We are targeting The Little Mermaid as our next episode. 30-year gap. Right. There were no princess movies released by Disney between 1959 and 1989 when The Little Mermaid came out. But you'll be happy to know that after that, they came out pretty fast and furious. We have Beauty and the Beast coming out in 1991, Aladdin in 92. Then we have The Lion King, which isn't exactly a princess movie, but, you know, close enough, in 94. <laughs> then we have The Return of Jafar, which is the sequel to Aladdin in 94 as well. We have Pocahontas in 95. And then Toy Story, also in 95, which then begins the era of Pixar. So I'm not saying that's the order we're going to follow, but I am saying the next episode will be The Little Mermaid. That's right. From here, we'll kind of jump from the more distant past to what I would say is my childhood experience of Disney films, which is Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. That's true. You know, Little Mermaid on, we were both alive at the point that these movies were released. Whether or not we had consciousness or not. <laughs> Do I today? <laughs> the jury's still out, Jake. <laughs> How many have we had? <laughs> it's not worth counting. Well, thank you, friends, for joining us. And as always, please let us know what you think of the show. You can reach us at hello at pintsandprincesses.com. And we look forward to hearing from you and look forward to seeing you on our next episode about The Little Mermaid. See you next time. Uh -huh.